welcome to the Erwan Podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, you hear my conversation from another podcast called Today Explained on Vox Media, hosted by Sean Rameshwaram. We had a conversation about Iran's detention of dual national citizens and how the government uses these prisoners as political pawns. First, you'll hear from Washington Post columnist Jason Razayan, who talks about his experience as a prisoner in Iran. And then you'll hear my conversation with the host Sean about dual national prisoners in Iran and why this practice continues to this day. Here's an episode of Today Explained with Sean Rameshwaram. Wicked, wicked. Okay. Um, tell us your name and how you would like us to identify you on our show, please. Jason Rezaian, uh, ex-con. Is that how you introduce yourself to people? Every once in a while. Depends. When you say ex-con, they probably want to go, what'd you do? And then what do you say? I didn't do anything. Like everybody else in Shawshank, I was innocent, right? <laughs> Like Andy Dufresne before him, Jason Rezaian didn't do it. But it didn't really matter because he was in Iran. And if you're an American or an Englishman or an Australian in Iran, if you're from some country that doesn't have a good relationship with Iran, which is a lot of them, you might just find yourself behind bars there for no reason. On the show today, we're going to figure out why exactly that is and whether anyone wants to change it. And we're going to start with Jason Rezaian's story. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, my mom was from Illinois. My dad was from Iran. And, you know, as their life progressed, they would travel back and forth to Iran a lot. I was born in 1976. The revolution happened in 1979. The hostage crisis uh, and all of those things that, that came after really colored my childhood in a lot of ways. And you juxtapose that with the fact that not only was my dad from Iran, but he had a large um, Iranian family who started to move from Iran to California near us. And my perceptions of Iranians were really different than what I grew up seeing represented on television and the news, um, in movies. So I always had this, this curiosity, this interest. Uh, when I was 25, for the first time I had the opportunity to go to Iran, and it was probably, you know, the... 40th something country that I'd, I'd visited. And it happened to be one of the craziest. Just so different, you know? It wasn't like anywhere else I'd been. I made that first trip in 2001, uh, several months before 9-11, returned home, went back again uh, the next year, and started filing stories. I'd studied creative writing in college, and some of my professors who were journalists had introduced me to various editors at different publications. So I just start randomly, you know, pitching pieces or sending finished manuscripts to, to editors, and little by little they started getting picked up. And I moved to Tehran in, in 2009, and from the time that I moved there, you know, I, I never wanted for work after that. There was always an opportunity for me to publish my stories. As a freelancer, I would write about everything. I was looking for stories of real people. So, you know, I, I wrote about art and culture, wrote about sports, I wrote about food, but I also wrote about the news. I wrote about poverty, wrote about drug addiction. And then, you know, as I, I moved more into mainstream day-to-day -day reporting for the Washington Post, I was able to bring some of those threads with me into my reporting 
as I reported on, on, on bigger geopolitical stories, which inherently, when you're the Washington Post correspondent in a country like that, you have different access than you do as, as a freelancer. And as an American-born journalist operating in Iran, are you at all nervous publishing stories about politics? Hell yeah. You know, you, you have to watch your back. And, you know, there are certain procedures and permissions that you have to get to do this work. And, and if you're smart and wise, you don't work without those permissions. So I always follow the rules and, and applied and, and waited until I received my accreditation before I would start working. And it was something that would have to be re-upped every few months. And the day that my wife and I were arrested, we were actually both given one-year extensions by the ministry uh, that, that handles press credentials of our press passes. So, you know, somebody was fine with me working in Iran. Tell me about the day you got arrested. We were um, at home. I had been uh, covering the latest round of nuclear negotiations in Vienna earlier that week. Um, I'd come back. We were preparing to travel to the United States. My wife and I had been married for 15 months at that point. Um, we were going to come to the U.S. for a couple of months, kind of a long break. She was going to get her green card, which, you know, we had done all of that paperwork from afar. She'd had her interviews at the consulate in the UAE. Um, everything was all set, and we were preparing um, to go to a surprise birthday party for my mother-in-law. We got dressed. We left our apartment, got in the elevator to go down uh, into the the building's garage. And when the door opened of the elevator, there were several guys there with guns pointed right at me. Um, They took us back into our apartment, ransacked the place. Uh, I'm not sure what they were looking for, and I don't think they really found it. But, you know, they took our, our computers, took our... Our laptops took all of our uh, forms of identification, paraded us through the courtyard of our apartment buildings in front of our neighbors, uh, handcuffed us, blindfolded us, threw us in the back of uh, a van, uh, and took us to Avene Prison, where I would spend the next 544 days. I lived uh, several seasons in Evine Prison, and the first one was, um, I would say, the hardest one because I was in solitary confinement. Uh, I spent seven weeks um, in solitary in a cell that was about four feet by eight feet with fluorescent lighting on 24 hours a day, only being taken out um, to be interrogated or for 20 minutes of blindfolded fresh air. Um, every afternoon. So that's not a very good existence, right? Um, There's nothing to while away the time. You're not given books. You're not given the opportunity to communicate with anybody. Um, So you're really trapped with your thoughts. Um, So that was incredibly hard. And it was during that time that I really started to think of myself, okay, if you're going to get through this you need to take it easy on yourself and be as kind and friendly to yourself as possible. So I spent as much time as I could kind of recounting positive memories and and good things that had happened in the past uh, and planning for the future because it's very easy to go down um, rabbit holes that are 
scary, distressing, um, and you know you can cause yourself a lot of of torment if you're not careful. I, I made a commitment to try and find something to laugh about every day, and I think about things that I did when I was a kid, and think about sweet memories with my wife and family vacations that I'd taken, you know, with my folks and baseball games that I'd gone to and trips that I'd taken and everything else that you can fill your time with. Fortunately, after 49 days, I was given the opportunity to come out of solitary confinement. I didn't know why. Um, and they put me in, in a larger um, cell but that had a, a courtyard connected to it, which allowed me the opportunity to be out of doors um, for the daylight hours. And Sean, I got to tell you, I mean, if you've been in solitary confinement for an afternoon, you know, if all of a sudden you're let out of solitary confinement and given the opportunity to, to spend um, time under the blue sky, even if there are massive brick walls that are topped in barbed wire uh, surrounding you, it is a major step up. And, um, you know, it, it kind of allows me to come out of this phase of feeling like a, a caged animal and feel more like just a caged person. Um, and, you know, gave me an opportunity to, um, to think about things in a more constructive ways. And their party line is that you're not really a journalist, but that you're a spy. Do they ever produce any proof? I, I clicked on something that I shouldn't have, and they were able to access my email. So they were living in my Gmail account for a few days before my arrest. So that meant that they were rifling through things and printing emails out. And they were, you know, reading emails in a language that was not their native one and seizing on things that... Uh, seemed suspicious. So in one email, for example, I had apologized to somebody for going radio silent. And, you know, the email printout comes back to me with that section highlighted in green. Why did you go radio, radio silent? Radio silent is, is only a term that spies use. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> At the time, and now in retrospect, you know, I didn't do anything wrong to get myself into this situation. It, you know, they're going to they're gonna concoct whatever they wanted to out of whatever they could. And, you know, it would all stick in their shitty um, judicial system. But in the, in the court of public opinion and, and, and in the real world, uh, nobody was buying it. And I guess this has gone on forever, but maybe lucky for you, there's these nuclear talks going on between the Obama administration and Iran, and they strike a deal, arrange for a prisoner swap, and you're finally released after 544 days. How does that feel? The challenges of new freedom are unique and strange and nothing that, that someone can be prepared for, especially when your ordeal has been so highly publicized and politicized. I'm happy they're coming home. My problem is this. Number one, they should never have been hostages in the first place. None of them did anything wrong. And number two, I think that Iran very deliberately seized them because they know that under a Barack Obama, you can trade Americans for people you want back. So, you know, I, I came out to a lot of fanfare among my colleagues in the media, but there were all sorts of people in Washington who hated this deal. People will die. 
Americans will die, Israelis will die, Europeans will die. Let's rise up and tell every elected official in Washington, stop this deal. And would have liked nothing more than to see no deal between the U.S. and Iran. Um, which, oh, by the way, if, if there was no deal, I might still be sitting in, in prison now, um, almost six years later. So, you know, it, it's it's very um, jarring to come back to that and to... Um, to live in Washington, D.C. now for the first time in my life uh, as someone who is closely associated with a very contentious political issue. And now that you're back in the States, uh, in D.C. specifically, I suppose, what have you learned about what exactly happened to you, about how you ended up imprisoned for more than a year? So I had a lot of conversations with people in, in the administration at the time. A lot of doors were open to me. And I, you know, I pushed those doors open and sat down and, and asked a lot of questions. And one of the things that officials in the Obama administration kept saying to me was, Jason, you know, we deal with uh, Americans who were wrongly detained in, in different countries all the time. This case, your case, was particularly egregious. We knew that there was nothing about your your work or your presence in Iran that was in any way um, dangerous to Iran's national security. You were very upfront about the work that you were doing, and this was a clear-cut case of, of an American being taken hostage uh, as leverage against us. Uh, they would say to me sometimes that, you know, had you actually been a spy, it would be really, you know, less complicated for us to deal with it. We do this all the time in different parts of the world. We trade people back and forth pretty regularly. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to trying to free innocent Americans uh, from other countries in exchange for people who have, um, you know, broken laws in the United States, oftentimes who are convicted felons, it gets kind of complicated. These are precedents that the Justice Department does not want to set. I've learned more about this than I ever uh, thought that I would. And in the process, learned that, you know, more and more governments are taking Americans hostage uh, for this very purpose. The special report that we planned to bring you tonight was about domestic politics, the battle among the Democrats. But we think the crisis in Iran is more urgent right now than the campaign here at home. Some 60 Americans are now beginning their sixth day of captivity inside the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. It's Friday morning there now, but throughout this night in Washington, officials will continue their search for some way to negotiate the hostages' freedom. That search was not successful today. Though Jason Rezaian is out now in the world talking about his experience as an Iran hostage, there's nothing particularly new about his experience. Iran has been at it a while. So we reached out to Nagar Mortazavi to find out more about this practice. I'm a journalist and political analyst and host of the Iran podcast. So Nagar, when does Iran start holding foreigners hostage as a foreign policy strategy? This really began... From the 1979 revolution, we've all heard about the hostage crisis at the beginning of the inception of the Islamic Republic and a group of students taking over the U.S. embassy and literally taking American diplomats hostage 
asking the United States to return the Shah of Iran. It was very publicly acknowledged by the Iranian side. It was that group of students and then later supported by the state, basically. And since those times, it's slowly evolved into a, I would say, manufactured judicial process. So the Iranians no longer call these people hostages. The process is no longer climbing over a wall and taking over an embassy, you know, publicly acknowledging Uh, blindfolding people, parading them in front of the cameras, they put them through a judicial process and they what they call security uh, crimes and hold them for um, crimes of espionage, of colluding against the state, propaganda against the state, collaborating with adversary governments. And um, to this day, it's basically continued. Iran is accused of using four prisoners to extract political and financial concessions from Washington. Secretary of State Antony Blinken assured the Sharjis and the families of the three other American prisoners held by Iran that their return is a priority. There are a number of foreign nationals as well as dual nationals who uh, the Iranian security forces are more paranoid about and see as the bigger threats to the country. And they're essentially held as bargaining chips um, for for Iran to take concessions from some of these Western countries or more adversarial states. Which is to say this practice didn't end with Jason's release. There are still hostages being held captive in Iran right now. Why does Iran keep doing this? One layer is that the Iranian hardliners think of themselves as this Um, weaker country when it comes to these bigger powers like the United States, like the United Kingdom. They feel like these countries are using the international uh, system to their benefit, international law to their benefit when it comes to this UK debt to Iran, the US blocking Iran's uh, assets abroad, US sanctions and things like that. And they go around and use what I consider inhumane method of taking these dual nationals basically as hostages, they call them prisoners, but as hostages to sort of compensate for what they see themselves weak in dealing with these uh, countries. There's another layer of paranoia added to this. There's some uh, factions within the Iranian state actually do believe that some of these dual nationals, people like myself, I mean, I've been living in exile in fear of the security forces. I'll probably be be arrested if I go back to the country, and I haven't been in a decade. Um, they they do think that these dual nationals, people like myself, Jason Rezaian, Nazani Zaghari, are actually spies and agents of these adversarial governments coming to the country to sort of gather intelligence or foment unrest and things like that. So you're saying there's a genuine belief on the part of the Iranian government that people like you and Jason, who in this country we would just call journalists over there, could be spies. It's a combination. So there's the paranoia coming together with that Uh, sort of uh, muscle flexing against these larger, as they see, imperialist powers. Um, And at some point, they see that it works, you know, even if they realize when they catch someone and they put them through days and hours of interrogation and they find nothing, then they think we might as well, you know, hold this person and get some concessions from whatever other government they have a nationality over. And specifically in the case of dual nationals, people like myself, Iranian, American, Iranian, Canadian, Iranian, British, these people are the ones who are 
bridges between these two countries. You know, Iran and the United States don't have diplomatic relations. It's very difficult for Iranians to travel to the U.S., for Americans to travel to Iran. And it's it's people like myself who go back and forth. They have family ties in, in both countries, and they essentially serve as a bridge. And part of the Iranian political system, especially the more hardline factions, they don't like that. They don't want to see that. Is the Iranian government ever right? Does it ever take someone who might be a journalist or a teacher or an aid worker who ends up really being a spy? It's a very unknown situation. One thing I can say is that, yes, these adversarial governments do send agents and spies into Iran because you see, for example, the Israelis conduct assassinations. They conduct espionage and, and, you know, these kind of uh, missions in Iran successfully. So they have to do it with the help of intelligence gathering. It could be within Iranian ranks. In the government, there there is probably um, agents within the government, but it seems like they're not catching the right ones, at least not fully, because these missions go are conducted successfully. And then you see journalists or a teacher or academics um, basically staying in prison um, while the, the real agents are roaming around. So it maybe they do sometimes catch agents, but they're not very successful in stopping these sabotages and, and um, assassinations that go on in the country. And that's actually something that the population, part of the political elite, is really vocal and critical about the security forces, that it seems like you're holding all these people, but they're the wrong ones because we see these sabotages, terrorist attacks and assassinations continuing on Iranian soil. And what does the Iranian government say in response? The United States does this to Iranians too. We have to take hostages to negotiate with the United States? Hostage taking really is is something non-state actors do. You know, it's um, non-state militias conduct business this way. And that's actually one reason why the Iranian state is not acknowledging that these people are hostages, except for the case of the um, U.S. diplomats at the beginning and the hostage crisis where it was publicly acknowledged. This is very different, and they try to put them through the judicial system to sort of make it look like, oh, these are held for legitimate reasons according to our law and to our national security and all of that. And let's see, the United States is doing the same to our citizens when it comes to the Iranian viewpoint. So I would say people who are held in the U.S. for a violation of U.S. sanctions, I wouldn't call them hostages per se. Yes, they're, they violated the law, but... The sanctions are not entirely justified. It's a foreign policy tool that the U.S. is using, the maximum pressure that's used by the Trump administration. No responsible government should subsidize Iran's bloodlust. As long as Iran's menacing behavior continues, sanctions will not be lifted. They will be tightened. And now the Biden administration is sort of continuing that. Will the U.S. lift sanctions first? in order to get Iran back to the negotiating table? No. And ordinary Iranian-Americans, people like myself, are basically, a financial um, behaviors are criminalized for us as Iranian-Americans. That's not criminalized for a Turkish-American or for a Pakistani-American, let's say, anybody else from the region. And it is because of that political fight between the two countries. So it's a complex issue with so many layers. But at the end of the day, the way Iranians look at that is that your sanctions are unjustified and you're holding people in jail for violating what's unjustified. And 
we're sort of doing the same thing and we want to exchange these people. It's, it's not what the entire picture is, um, but um, that's, that's definitely one argument that the Iranians are making when they allude to the prisoner exchange. And this back and forth between the two countries is now a few years into its fifth decade. Will it ever end or are we just going to hear stories like Jason's forever? I think at the end of the day, it's not only about the U.S. holding Iranians as prisoners. It's also about U.S.-Iran political animosity and tension. We're going to see one form of another until these political fights actually stop. Nagar Mortazavi is a political analyst based in Washington, D.C. Jason Rezaian, who you heard from in the first half of the show, is an opinion writer at The Washington Post. And he's also got a podcast all about his experience as a political prisoner in Iran. If you want a much more detailed account, it's called 544 Days. If you want an abbreviated account, you came to the right place. Our episode today was produced by Victoria Chamberlain. It's Today Explained. That was an episode of Today Explained from Vox Media with Sean Rameshwaram. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast. With your financial support, we can continue our work and be editorially independent. Until next time.